Well, we're honored today to have Dr. James Edwards with us. He's joining us from Spokane, Washington, where he lives with his wonderful wife of over 50 years, Janie. He is the, the uh, Bruner Welch Professor Emeritus of uh, Theology at Whitworth University. He has had a deep impact on college students for years and years and years and years. Um, I looked online and um, I found that one student had posted online, best prof at Whitworth. And another said, this guy is the greatest thing since Genesis. God has used Jim to change numerous lives, including mine. He was my pastor when I was in college. And uh, since then has had a deep influence on the way that I think and teach and preach. I, um, he's written numerous books. I, I refer regularly to his uh, commentaries on Mark and Luke and Romans when I preach and I teach on those texts. He's a, he's a popular speaker and teacher around the country and he is a friend. Um, the topic that we've asked him to address today is, I have a friend who believes the Bible can't be trusted. Can it? Yeah. So, Luke, I'll turn it to you. Yeah, Jim, we, uh, that I have a friend. I, I don't know if you've had a lot of those sorts of conversations, but we do from time to time. And I think a good way maybe into this whole conversation is just, if, if you could answer the question, why have you spent your life, really, dedicated to the study of the Bible as an academic? Well, thanks for uh, inviting me to this conversation. I'm looking forward to it. It's a subject that I um, love and actually have a personal investment in for the very reason, Luke, that you've asked. I grew up in a church in Colorado Springs. I love the Lord. My family did. But I got the impression that the church didn't really care very much about Scripture and seemed to be very indifferent for it. And I picked that up both in the reading of scripture, but more than that, in the proclamation of the word. And I can just remember driving home from that church and feeding myself. I couldn't have been very old either. I might have been 12. But I remember thinking to myself, the gospel deserves better than this. Mm -hmm. I love the Lord. I believed that the Bible was God's revelation, but the church seemed to be so indifferent and so careless with it. And that had a big influence on me beginning to look at the Bible academically, to study it, to become a preacher, to become a teacher. I I believe that the New Testament is the greatest hope of the world. I believe that it tells the most important story in the world. And I believe that on that story, the whole future of the world depends. And if that's true, then it's worth my life. It's worth all of our lives when we believe it. And that's why I have um, enjoyed these years of study of the New Testament. Well, I got to say, I've appreciated the work that you've done. I like your books. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Thank you. How do we know that what we have in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John today, tell us accurately, um, tell us the truth? Well, that's a great question. And 
I think that the best way to answer it from my perspective is to think broadly about the whole nature of ancient literature. So when we open the New Testament, we're reading a document that was written uh, 2,000 years ago. That's a long time ago. But there are other documents that we read, and we read quite seriously, that are just as old. Okay. Uh, we read Caesar's Gallic Wars. We read Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, which are 800 years older. We read Thucydides. We read Tacitus. I mean, we read a number of authors in the old ancient world that we take, uh, if not literally, at least credibly. Yeah. So I was doing some, some research on this, and I thought it might be interesting to um, just give you some statistics, and I'll try not to overwhelm you because the main point is at the end, and I'll make that clear. So here's a couple of facts. Number one. Um, we do not possess the autographed copy of any book in the New Testament or the Bible. Okay. We only possess copies of copies. But no document in the ancient world has come down to us in its autographed copy. They all are copies of copies. Hmm. So listen to this. Caesar's Gallic Wars, there are 10 manuscripts total. And the earliest that we have is 900 years after Caesar wrote. Uh, Tacitus history, two manuscripts. The earliest, 1,000 years. Um, one of Plato's doc, uh, dialogues exists on only one manuscript to us, 1,300 years later. Get this. The oldest copy of the Iliad, certainly the Iliad is the most famous uh, ancient document apart from the New Testament. The oldest copy is eight, 1,800 years later. Now, this is going to seem wildly exaggerated, but it's true. We don't have more than a dozen copies of any ancient text. We have 6,000 copies of the New Testament. Well. Now, they're not all complete. Some of them are just the size of postage stamps. Some of them are paragraphs. Some of them are chapters. Some of them are entire books. And some of them are the entire New Testament. But here's the thing. These 6,000 manuscripts, the earliest of them is within 50 years of the writing of the New Testament. And the earliest full manuscripts are within 300 years. Now, what's my point here? I don't mean to try to evade the question by lots of statistics, but two, two points. Number one, the New Testament is by far the best attested text of any document in ancient history. Wow. That's indisputable. That's big. Wow. Now, that doesn't mean that the New Testament is true. 
That does not mean that Jesus is the Son of God. That does not mean that the book of Genesis, God creates the world by the spoken word is true. It does not mean that. What it does mean is that when you pick up the Iliad or when you pick up Caesar's Gallic Wars and you read those and you assume that this is credible, that the New Testament would be worthy of the same assumption of credibility. Okay. Yeah. So this, I hope, was not too laborious, but it really is a fact that we have a document in the New Testament that is so well attested as a historical document sure. that it would at least be worthy of the presumption of being read seriously. Yeah, that's yeah, great. That's awesome. Yeah, for those, by the way, who are watching who don't know, Tacitus is an ancient historian. Uh, Caesar's Gallic Wars tell a good chunk of the Roman Empire's kind of military victories. Um, yeah, that's that's really remarkable stuff, Jim. Thank you. Um, so I, I know we have folks who think about um, contradictions. Uh, there, there are folks who think about contradictions in the Bible um, or uh, ways in which uh, things at least seem to disagree uh, within um, the scriptures in the New Testament and the Old Testament. Um, I don't know if, if those contradictions bother you, or uh, I just maybe what are some of your thoughts on contradictions in the Bible? Right. I think this is an absolutely important question because it's one that, um, that everyone who reads the Bible faces. So let me try to step back and just say a word here. The Bible has 66 different books in it. And these books were not all written by the same person. Now, I believe that they were inspired by God, but divine inspiration doesn't cancel human personality. It actually infuses it with God's spirit and accentuates it. Now, the reason I say that is that if we have 66 different authors or even perhaps more than that, we shouldn't expect that they would all sound alike in the same way that you too both proclaim the gospel, but you don't mimic each other. Right. Now, it's even more complex than that because the Bible was not written all in a week. The book of Genesis and the book of uh, Revelation are separated by centuries and centuries of time and by cultures. Yeah. The New Testament is written in the Greco-Roman world. The Old Testament is written in an entirely different Semitic world of centuries before. So we have different cultures from which these texts are arising. And all this means that we have very different ways of saying even the same thing. But even Christians who believe in Christ, we differ on some points. We see those differences in the New Testament as well. So not all differences are contradictions. Sure. Um, so I'm trying here to say that the Bible, the inspiration doesn't cancel human personality. The Bible is not like a mathematic equation. It's a history. Um, if both, if all three of us see an accident on a corner and we 
report it to the authorities, our testimonies will differ slightly. It doesn't mean the accident didn't occur, but it does mean that each one of our perspectives and testimonies is slightly different. And we see those in the Bible. So not all differences are contradictions. And I think that it's really important for us to read scripture with this human witness understanding that these are people who believe that this is true and they are trying to bear witness to it in their own words, but their words sometimes differ from others. Now there can be some contradictions, but not all differences are contradictions. Is that of some help? I think so. But the, the contradictions that you do see, do they bother you or, or not? And I'm just curious to know why personally. Right. Yes, they, they do bother me, but it depends what the contradiction is about. Okay. Um, for example, um, it can be a contradiction about a detail that, that doesn't affect the story. I see. For example, um, the Gospel of Luke says that Jesus was transfigured eight days after he declared himself to be the Messiah at Caesarea Philippi. Okay. And Matthew and Mark say six days. Now that's a difference. Six is different from eight. I don't know how to rectify that. Um, was Luke, Luke likes the word eight. Um, was he trying to make a point there using eight? And if so, it's escaped me and I think most modern scholars. But that contradiction doesn't bother me too much because it doesn't affect in any material way the truth of the gospel. Now, if we had a contradiction that said the tomb wasn't empty, Jesus was in it, the resurrection was a, a wish, a wunsch built, a wish dream of the disciples, that would be a tremendous problem. Yeah. But we don't see that. So when we're talking about the essence or the essential beliefs of the New Testament and of all of Christian doctrine, we don't base those upon any contradictory testimony. I think you've been talking about the Bible as history, but I think we would say that it's not only um, history, like it's not like a history textbook, for example. Uh, maybe right. could you talk about different kinds of literature in the Bible? Right, right. Thanks, Luke. That's a great question. So when we open the Bible, uh, what what do we discover? And I mentioned the fact that this is historical witness, and it is that. But there's more than one way to bear witness to a truth than simply by reporting facts. For example, we read authors like C.S. Lewis or J.R. Tolkien, who are Christians who want to tell truthful stories. Harry Potter is another example of this. I'm not sure it's Christian, but um, it's it illustrates my point, but we do so by myth, by imaginary literature. We don't really believe there was a Harry Potter, but what he talks about is true. Okay. Same is true with Lewis and Narnia. Well, actually, we have instances like this in the New Testament and in the Old. It's very probable that the book of Jonah is not history, but is uh, what we would maybe call either imaginary literature or actually a vision. And Jesus himself 
in his primary mode of teaching, he told stories. These are not historical stories. They were parables of things that illustrated the kingdom of God, but you wouldn't find on a map or you couldn't find in a history book. The book of Revelation has lots of visions and stories in it as well. And we see in the Old Testament, Dave, or Nathan, for example, tells a parable to David to convict him of his adultery with Bathsheba's murder of Uriah. And so the Bible is not only told by many different voices over many different centuries, it has many different genres of literature. And we cannot read all of these genres of literature as though they are mathematical equations or historical fact. We read them according to the intention of the literature. The book of Esther is certainly an example of this. So I think it helps us to remember that when we open the New Old Testament and the New Testament, we actually are reading a library. And this library has different genres of literature in it in the same way that a regular library does. And that helps us then to read understandably without being erroneously critical, okay. basing our criticism on a mistaken understanding of a literary genre. Sure. So we have multiple books in one book and different things are happening. I think um, for some folks, it might be a little challenging to hear that maybe somebody like Jonah might not be a historical person and the story would still be true um, and that might even cast some question on, say, like the existence of Jesus as a historical person. Where, where would you sort of find like guiding criteria on determining what genre of literature we're dealing with? Right. It's a great question. Um, and the answer is uh, you would look at literary genre in the same way that you do when you say read Tolkien versus uh, reading a history book. Mm. Uh, there are clues here. Let's just go to Jesus. Um, Jesus is not presented as a mythical character. How does the Gospel of Luke in chapter 3 begin? Um, when Augustus Caesar ruled, when Pontius Pilate ruled Palestine, when um, Caiaphas was chief priest, we can date all of those people. Those are historical figures. God calls John the Baptist from the desert. When we overlap all of those people, we can say factually, and the author of Luke wants us to be able to say, this is why he's given us these dates. And remember in the old, uh, olden day, they didn't have calendars. Right. They determined time by rulers' regnancy, hence the 14th year of Caesar. Everybody knew when Caesar started, and so you you do it by Caesar. We see this all throughout the Old Testament as well. So we can show that John the Baptist and Jesus's baptism and ministry begin almost exactly the year 27 AD, give or take a year or two. So this is not mythical writing. Myths are not this way. Myths begin once upon a time. You don't ask anything more than that. That immediately tells you that this is an imaginary world. But historical begins, as Luke does, by giving dates, times, places, and personalities. And the testimony of the Gospels is not written as a myth, but as historical reminiscence and witness. Nice. 
I think we can all agree that anyone named Luke is incredible. Um, but, yes. That's uh, a humble thing for you to say. You know, I just, I'm putting it out there. Uh, yeah, I, so so it, it just for the sake of things, um, because this is nice and blunt, Jesus existed, was a real person, really walked the earth, actually did miracles. Do you think that that's true? It's true. There's, there's no way you can doubt that. Now, you could choose not to understand him or not to receive him as the son of God. That's absolutely right. That is a decision of faith. But to say that Jesus did not exist, that the best testimony of the ancient world tells us that he performed miracles, the best testimony of the ancient world also tells us that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate by the Romans and that his grave was empty and that a remarkable revolution in the early church took place because of this, that is historically trustworthy. If you can't trust that, we're back to my earlier comment, you couldn't trust anything that you read in the ancient world. In fact, I doubt that you could trust virtually anything that you read in a modern newspaper. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. This word trust is such an important word because... Mm. If we trust something, if we put our trust in something, it it has an uh, an impact. It's not just a head thing, but it has an impact on how we live. And so, I wonder if if as we um, as you think about the trustworthiness of the Bible, how does it what does it mean to to trust it in in terms of how it impacts the way we live? Yeah. Well, that's that's such a wonderful uh, question because. When you think about trust and proof, um, Luke, sure, you, Luke, your question was, uh, you didn't ask me if we could prove that the New Testament is truth, but is there enough substance here that we can make a rational decision? And the answer is yes. Nice. Um, reasonably, factually, evidentially, the New Testament is worthy of being taken seriously. But does that mean that we can trust it? It doesn't mean that. Um, in my experience, and as I think about it, trust is usually a decision that we make with some degree of uncertainty. Hmm. And we make the decision of trust, given the uncertainty, on the basis of the verifiability of the source. So if I know you, if I have uh, uh, never been cheated by you, if your words in the past have been truthful, and you tell me to do X, probably going to do X. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm making the right choice. It means that I have a reason to trust you. I still have to choose to trust. That's all I'm saying about the New Testament. The early writers really worked hard uh, not to make up a story, but to bear witness to something that they believed was true. Nice. And they told it in such a way that we who come later 
can take their witness at face value and then trust Gail. And then we know for ourselves what they knew. And that's the reason the Christian faith has been proclaimed, heard, believed, and trusted over the centuries. And you and I are Christians. And God willing, our children will be as well. This is the way that God works in this world. Yeah. Not by proof, but by trust. Mm. And when you think about it, all of the important things in life, you have to take by trust. And none of the things that can be proven will outlast you. Yeah. You get married by trust. You choose a course in life. This career versus that, by trust. You choose where you may live, by trust. We can't be guaranteed in advance of the outcomes of these things. And yet they are the most important things in the world. We choose to bring children into this world, a very scary world, trusting that it's better to do so than not. This is what life is about. Certainly the trust that is asked of us to believe in the gospel is of the same category that of these trusts that we do uh, fairly regularly in life. And we do them quite well. Jim, what does it mean to you personally to live biblically? Well, that's a wonderful question. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is one that I raced over for years. It's Ephesians chapter four, verse one. Um, my friends, says Paul, I ask that you walk worthily of the calling to which you were called. Isn't that a beautiful statement? Yeah. We're not told you have to do this, you have to do that. Don't do X or you'll go to hell. Do this and you'll go to heaven. It, it's not a prescription of how to get points, to prove ourselves, to gain some kind of acceptance, to be better than others, or measure ourselves against others. Walk worthily of the calling to what you are called. Um, this is what I tell couples that I marry. You're now married. You said you love one another. Uh, walk worthily of your vows. When we bring children into the world, we have the greatest desires. Walk worthily as parents of what you'd want them to be. And this isn't law. This is grace. And grace is the ability to live with my life, declare with my life what I believe in my heart and what I receive with my mind. And that's called the witness, the testimony of faith. That's great. Amen. Amen to that. Yeah. Amen. You want to praise out? Yeah. Thank you again, Jim, for the time. Um, for those of you who are watching this, uh, we're just so glad uh, that you were a part of this this morning. And uh, we'll probably post some kind of extended version of a conversation if Jim's willing to stick around with us uh, for some more questions. So, a footnote. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll pray for us really quickly. Lord Jesus, thank you so much. Um, for Jim Edwards, uh, for the gift he is to the church, uh, for all of the people over the years he's impacted as he's 
taught and led and spoken about the gospel with honor and faithfulness in a, a seminary and in local churches. Um, thank you for the marriages he's impacted, for the children who are being brought up uh, by people who believe in the gospel because of Jim. Uh, God, thank you for the, the witness he is in my life, uh, which has happened primarily through books, uh, for the person he's been in my mom's life. Um, yeah, we're just really grateful, Lord. And we pray uh, for any and all who see this, um, that they would learn the difference between proof and trust. Um, and we pray, Lord, that we might all learn to trust you more deeply and to walk worthily of the, the call that you've called us to. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen.